Today the title is Come to Worship. I think you should have figured that out by now. You had enough videos that told you we were coming to worship. You had enough thoughts about coming to worship. You had enough mentions about worshiping and how we worship incorrectly. I had a nice, cute, wonderful beginning of the year sermon about the wise men, which I don't know why I keep calling them wise men because the biblical text doesn't, the magi. And I got to tell cute stories about the celebration of the wise men, which is a huge celebration in South America. Until recently, it was more significant than Christmas, where you set out a shoe similar to a stocking, and the wise men come to visit, and they drop things off, and you leave some grass for the camels, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful celebration. And then I was going to tell this wonderful story by Brett Younger, and if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that I spend way too much time reading for Brett Younger. He was going to tell about a nativity scene with Santa Claus in the scene and shepherds falling and all these things and how the Magi have just as much right to be at the nativity as Santa Claus does because they weren't there. However, one of the rules that I try to follow, even when it causes more work for me, is I try, when in doubt... I would want to do as a pastor what I would want my pastor to do. If things happen, what would I want my pastor to do? And then as my wife jokes about in our house, it's dinner time, someone should make dinner. Oh, that's right, I'm the mom, I need to make dinner, it's my job. Oh, that's right, I'm the pastor, it's my job. And then on Saturday morning, you or Friday night, I can't even remember which, it was probably both. You walk past your teenage son's room, which, by the way, is a scary thing to do. You walk past it, and he's listening to the radio, and he has that look that only someone with the skill and the compassion and the spirituality that he has can look at you and go, there was a drone strike, and there was this, and just have that look of, I don't like this, and I don't know what to do with this. Not only you're his pastor, you're his father, and now you've got to struggle with what to say about that, and you realize you can't do your cute little sermon where you make fun of the wise men not being wise and not being three and not even knowing how to worship and just doing what the leader told them to do and bringing gifts to the Messiah that symbolize how he's going to die. Now, because, you know, I listen to lots of sermons from other people in many places they worship on Saturday nights. Many people who are on the Presidential Leadership Council and Religious Council group um, preached Saturday night. I listened to their sermons. They did not say a word about any current event whatsoever which is interesting. And they just talked about how it's 2020 and we have a vision for 2020 and you should have a vision for 2020. 2020, it's a cute joke. I mean, you have 2020 vision. And this is how we should see life because 2020 refers to do you see the proper thing at a distance of 20 feet? If you see what you should see at 20 feet, at 20 feet, then you have 2020 vision. It's about distance, it's about 
seeing something in the future and about focus, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I'm also caught with the trap that many ministers have said this. We attribute this to Karl Barth. That preachers should preach with the Bible in one hand, and I know I use electronic devices, this imagery goes away. A Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand, but then you should read the newspaper through the biblical text. And I'm also confronted with the fact, another quote that we often get wrong, as in some small areas a church history expert, that those who do not learn the mistakes of history are doomed to repeat the mistakes of history, which is the original quote, by the way. And then I'm stuck with this text that I know the background of. This sermon would be way easier if I didn't. I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1 through 11. And I won't have the cool Craig Groeschel voice reading it, so you'll have to put up with that. And I'm going to read from New American Standard. You're going to notice immediately there's a reason I don't normally read from New American Standard. It is an incredibly solid translation, but it reads like you're reading another language. Those of you who've had to study other languages and the words don't make sense, this is how this one sounds. Let me just read it to you. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined for them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then verse 12 refers to, after that they realized they shouldn't go see Herod because Herod was a bad guy. I know that I have spoken a lot, and it's a very important thing, and I think it's very important for you. We need to read the biblical text, trying as best we can to figure out what it originally meant. And if that means a little more effort, that means a little more time, then we need to take the time. Because, as the great scholar N.T. Wright says often, the farther away we get from when the original text was written, the harder it is for us to know what it originally meant. Which is probably why he says the word Isaiah a lot. Because he has no idea about how many Isaiahs there were. And I've made a big deal correctly of a biblical text can never mean what a biblical text never meant. But when you're reading the text and trying to figure out what it means, there's another pattern that you can use, which I'm going to use today. There won't be any pretty words up here. Media people have already been told the slides are done at this point. 
There's four steps to figuring out what a text meant. You need to try to figure these things out. One, you need to figure out what the problem in the text is. What's the problem in the text? Now, you may not be able to figure that out. This shouldn't be hard. Hey, they can't find the Messiah. The Magi, the wise men, can't find the Messiah, so they go to see Herod. How smart can you be when you go to see Herod? They can't find, so they go to see Herod. Now, eventually, they do find the Messiah. And all the information that Jewish people had, it's a bunch of non-Jews who find the Messiah. But that's not the main point that Matthew's making and the main problem. Matthew lives in a time in which violence is the norm. Might makes right. And there are three key political groups that are in this text, either clearly or implied. Let's go with the implied one first. Rome. Caesar Augustus, Octavius, he has like three other names. He's the adopted son of Julius Caesar. You may have heard of Julius Caesar. There may have been some problems in violence in Julius Caesar's day. He adopted a son, which should imply to you that his sons don't live. Adopts a son, and this is the son that eventually is declared Augustus Caesar. When you are declared a Caesar, you are declared divine. That's what a Caesar means. Augustus, Caesar Augustus, is the one who brings in the census. Caesar Augustus is the one who is fighting a war, and he has been fighting it from his beginning. And he wants to keep claiming that everything's peaceful, but he is constantly beating people down and forcing them to do things just because he's the leader. And if you question him... He will say, you do not question me. I work for God. There's Herod. You notice how in Matthew's text, Herod is called the king three times. That's not his title. He has a lower title. He works for Caesar Augustus. Actually, he works for three other people before you can even get to Caesar Augustus. But for the purpose of Matthew's writing, he wants to show Herod as the king of the Jews title that would not have been used except derogatorily, which is why Pilate uses it for Jesus. Herod, I really don't want to pick on Herod, but we have a lot of data from historical sources that confirm this. If you studied psychology, Herod's a test case. If you studied dysfunctional families, Herod is a test case. If you studied political science, Herod is a test case. All of those fields of study study Herod. And all of them shake their head and go, I cannot believe this man was in charge. Okay, don't want to rant about it too much, but yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Herod always wanted to be seen as his sons learn and do later. I am speaking for God, and anything I do is for God, and you should just trust me, no matter how bad or how immoral I act, just trust me, and if you question me once, you are questioning God. Don't do it. And I have the right to chop off your head, which he enjoyed doing. I don't know why. There's a third political figure that everybody reading this in Matthew's day would have gotten. And it's the, really the problem in the text. 
We read in verse 1 that some magi from the east. Now you read that and go, east, east, um, east. Is that like Indiana? Okay, no. East, everyone knew what east was. East was the Persian Empire. There's a war that goes on on and off for about 700 years, maybe longer, but I'm going to say 700 years right now since just bringing this up. It's known as the Roman-Persian War because they fought for that long. There had just recently, before the events that we read in this text, there had just been a great defeat of one of the great generals of Augustus Caesar who lost 30,000 men, which was a lot back then. And the Persians turned them into guards, slaves to defend their thing, which was embarrassing to the Roman Empire. Oh, there's another name for this that's used by most historians. It's known as the Roman-Iranian War. Mm, Yeah, there should be groaning now. Persia, in biblical times, at least when King Cyrus was the Messiah, he was anointed, he was called the Messiah by Isaiah, Persia was parts of Afghanistan, Pakistan, Egypt, Turkey, and Iran. At this time, it's mostly what you know as modern-day Iran. Don't you wish the pastor didn't know that? Wish I didn't either. The leader of the king of Persia needs some allies. Is that why he sent gifts to the new king who would hate the Romans? The Persian king, who they lose the war eventually, so we don't really know his name. We only know that they were famous for saying, we serve God, and I always get this wrong, because it's Zoroastrianism, and this is not the day for me to unpack Zoroastrianism for you. But we serve the God, the good God, because they had an evil God too. And if you question me, you question the good God. Any of that sound familiar? Oh, that's right. You should look when you see a problem in the text. You should see if the problem occurs in your world today. For 12 years, the United States, according to documents, easily defined. Look at CBS News. It's not hard to find. For 12 years, the U.S. has been keeping track of a specific Iranian military leader who they had partnered with in fighting ISIS, but he was also knew that he couldn't defeat the United States, and so he was partnering with all kinds of groups and funneling money and resources to other groups. And as of very recently, a drone strike killed him and a lot of other collateral damage, but I have a degree in religion, not political science, so you can unpack that on your own. But it was decided that this leader needed to be killed to avoid future wars. And as always happens when this happens, it happened in the Roman-Iranian War, We declare revenge upon the infidels. We need death to the infidels and we need to protect our religious freedom in our country. That is the language currently being used in Iran currently as I'm talking to you. Death to the infidels and we need to protect the religious freedom in our world. However, on the same weekend, the President of the United States spoke at a predominantly Hispanic Miami church in which the pastor had to assure everyone who was attending that undocumented immigrants would not be deported. Not a part of his sermon, I just find that funny. Um, And he 
speaks at the church, which, by the way, is a violation of church and state, a violation of IRS rules blatantly, speaks at the church and says these words, and I quote, God, I am on God's side, and I am the greatest president that any Christians have ever had, and I am the greatest defender of religious freedom ever. With the implication, if you don't do what I say, then you're working against God. So I have Iranian leaders today saying, if you don't do what we say in our country, you're working against God. And I have a president of our country, along with many other people, a few of which I listened to preach last night, who said, if you don't do what the president says, you're working against God. Gosh, I wish I didn't know the background of this text. It'd make a much funnier sermon. So the problem in the text is the same problem we have today. Trust me as your leader, no matter what I do, no matter how immoral I act, it's going to be okay. Cannot pass on this because I am a resident of Arkansas, and so I want to be equal because it's going to seem like I'm being negative towards one party today. I'm not. In the middle of an impeachment we decide to a drone strike another country in the Middle East. We do not learn the mistakes of the past. We are doomed to continue the mistakes of the past. 1988, Bill Clinton, in the middle of an impeachment, struck Iraq. I'm, hmm, that must mean something. But trust me, if you don't trust me as your leader, then you question God. That is the mandate. That has been the mandate back in the time of the Magi, and that is the mag- mandate today. So, now that I've depressed you beyond belief with no idea what for you to do, what was the solution in the text? Why does Matthew say what he says? Let's do the easy part first. Even if you don't understand about God, even if you don't understand everything you believe, follow God, follow the star even if it leads you somewhere you don't want it to lead you. And I really would like to unpack this for a while because it was the best part of the sermon I had written originally. But the Magi show up in a house that doesn't have heat with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which ironically is foolish, but okay. They show up in a house that wasn't in Bethlehem. Probably maybe may have been a man on the outskirts of Bethlehem. They show up at a house probably two years later, to see a child. Can I emphasize this enough? It's one thing to show up and see a nice, pretty, eight-pound, six-ounce baby and worship him. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to worship a toddler before there were pampers? Yeah, huh? That's the Messiah that the Magi showed up to. And they did what they were supposed to do anyway. Often following God doesn't lead us where we think it's going to lead us. Often following God leads us to difficult places. Also, the Magi did not listen to the evil leader. Herod said, oh, tell me where he is so I can come and worship him. The Magi did not do this. 
not to ruin the punchline in Matthew's narrative, but Matthew uses the term come and worship many times in the text. Matthew wants the people hearing this to get the point that coming to worship or saying you believe stuff is not good enough. It's the same mistake that any Jewish boy was taught. Go read the book of Isaiah. Go read Ezekiel. Go read the minor prophets. Go read almost all of Deuteronomy. Worship is great, but if you don't do what you say, God doesn't care. And I'm underselling what the Old Testament prophets would say. The Magi came and worshipped. We'll come back to that in a second. I don't think Herod was coming to worship. I don't think a lot of the people were coming to worship. Worship is not enough. Believing certain things and saying you believe certain things but not acting them out is not enough. Which brings us to our solution today. Based on this text. Real quick. God's will is not something that tragically happens and you go, this is God's will for my life and this is how it's going to be. God's will is something that moves across the earth and we need to figure out where it's going and how it's doing and what it's doing and follow it. Maybe it won't be a star. Or maybe it'll be an event in our culture. Maybe be some need in our community. Maybe something that happens in the state. But when God's will opens a door for us to do something, we need to be ready to go and do it. Just as the Magi, who were probably paid really well to go see Jesus, went and followed the star. God's will is not some magic thing. I will pray and God will show me everything. That has never been the biblical intention of God's will. That has never been how anyone has understood God's will. God's will is something that moves and we need to follow. Even if it leads us to a two-year-old would be really sad and depressing at that point. <sighs> Solution in our world is we need to be careful embracing violence and trusting leaders who say they know best. At the risk of you thinking that I'm attacking the Republicans at the moment, which I am, um, I will have this data for you in a couple weeks. Obama used exactly the same language, exactly the same way. He just didn't come off quite as obnoxious as Trump did. That's a different conversation because Obama's that cool guy. And when he says it, we all just listen and it's really cool. Trump says that he's just that loudmouth, obnoxious person, not disagreeing with either of those facts. They said the same thing. If you question me, you question God. It was said so often that Bernie Sanders has made it very clear that if you are a follower of Jesus, that disqualifies you for political office. Yeah, sorry. I just ruined the punchline of religious freedom in a couple weeks. Leaders always say, you should follow me, and if you don't follow me, you don't follow God. And they've almost always been lying. I want to use several expletives now, but I'm not going to. They're lying a lot. And when we believe leaders who lie to us, we go down a bad path, just as the Magi do, eventually. Matthew is the one who presents us the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We should treat this earth as if we're trying to bring heaven to earth. So what do I do? 
That's great, John. I understand the four sections and I get that. But what do I do with this text? What do I do with the fact that I'm not sure how to deal with the fact that we may have entered another war? What do I deal with the fact that the country that I live in that claims to be a Christian nation when it's convenient in the 250-some years that it's existed, for 224 of those years has been fighting wars? And no Christian leader would say that war is always a good solution. What do I do with the fact that it seems so easy for us as Christians to embrace war? We always seem to think we're on the right side. Well, so does everybody living in Iran right now. Who's right? Well, I am. How do you know? The Magi were sure they were right. And this is where knowing way too much about the text is a problem. They were sure they were right. They were sent by their Persian leader to go cater to the new Jewish king because they were going to need him as an ally to fight the Romans. The Magi don't go to worship. The Magi go to do their job. The Romans, during Augustus' time, had made homage to several of the groups in Egypt, and they had done exactly the same thing, brought exactly the same presents, exactly the same way, because they wanted the Egyptians to be an ally. So the Persians did the very same thing for the Jews. It's not an act of worship. Now, maybe at Grand Prairie today, when I preach this text in way calmer fashion, We'll talk about Zoroastrianism and whether they were astrologers and whether they saw a star. Probably not, but just go with me. They were just doing what their culture told them. You want to know what you need to learn from this text as you deal with the current events around you that I don't know what we're supposed to do. I don't have a degree in political science. I don't have a degree in military history. But I know that God loves everyone. And the loss of any life hurts God, even that person. Here's what I do know. The Magi got to see Jesus and did not change one bit. We know lots from history of this this event. We know lots that led up to it. We know lots of things that occurred. Here's what we also know. There was no movement of Jesus in all the Persian Empire. The Magi did not go back and say, we have seen the Messiah and he is great and we will bow down to worship him. We will worship him forever. They did not do that. They went back to the king who paid them a bunch of money to make a trip that took them probably a year and a half and said, we gave the gifts. I don't know he's the military. I don't think he's who you want. Because his mom and dad seem kind of clueless about it. And nothing changed in their life whatsoever. And they continued to live in a world where their king told them, if you question me, you question God. I wonder. And I don't know. I don't have an answer. I'm just doing what I would want my pastor to try to say. Do we too willingly trust people who we like or don't like just because it benefits us 
Is that what Jesus came to do? Do we think doing certain things causes God to make things wonderful and everything's wonderful in our world? Probably not. When you read the story of the Magi, always read these words. They came and they rejoiced. They worshiped and they gave gifts. They went home. Nothing changed. There's a reason historically we have trusted leaders who've told us they were God. And if you question me, you question God. Because it's easier. But Jesus didn't die for that. Jesus didn't die so that my son could be told by leaders who act immorally, you better trust me because I work for God. Jesus didn't die so you could say you believe a whole bunch of stuff and it'll all be good. Jesus died so you would do what the early Christians did. Before there were creeds, before the biblical text was written down in something people could read, and they went and they loved and they cared for everyone. The early Christians cared for the Samaritans, the Moabites, the barbarians, and even the Persians. It wasn't until after the period of Constantine in which Christianity spread to the Persian Empire, led by a bunch of Christians who didn't have any influence or any anything, and they changed the world. Worship is nice. Believing things is nice. Doing is what matters. Check the actions when you speak up and say you speak for God. Does it sound like an action that God would say? If it doesn't, be careful when you say that. The Magi listened to lots of leaders who told them they worked for God. I don't think any of them did. And we need to wonder in our country, in our city, in our state, whether we are trusting leaders who say they speak for God, and maybe they don't. I know, aren't we all happy we came to church today on first Sunday? But to be honest and to be fair and to be the pastor of the church that we're in, American Baptists from the beginning have spoken up when the governments of all countries have said, trust me, I speak for God. And American Baptists have said, eh, are you sure? You should be proud to be a part of some of that heritage. The reason there's less racism in the, in the U.S. is because of American Baptists. The reason there's less political strife, and some of you are thinking, uh, dude, there was more political strife. Yes, there was. There was duels and shootings and assassinations. You may have heard about it. You study your U.S. history. It's awful. Um, there's less of that because of American Baptists. And we still have ways to go. But the fact that women and men are approaching the point of being equal in all of society is because of American Baptists. Because they chose not to trust leaders who said they worked for God and said they chose to worship and go and do what love requires. If you haven't seen that as a precursor to the next few weeks where I preach about what it means to be Baptist, you might want to be here. My point is... We're going to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. 
It's not turn your eyes upon the leader who says he works for God. It's not turn your eyes upon the leader who says, I have these religious people who are really smart and really wonderful, but they always agree with every single thing I say. And before we make fun of Jack Graham and Paula White and that group, Obama had his own group that did the exact same thing, exactly the same way, and we bought it too. You serve God, not this nation. 